And so I learned, while researching this irreverent documentary, that while most people know that President Truman dropped nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, invaded Korea, and fired Douglas MacArthur, they don't realize that he was an early advocate for a federally sponsored medical insurance plan. Although he failed spectacularly, he created the template for Medicare two decades later, and Obamacare half a century later. Before you consent to collaborate with me on Give Him Healthcare, Harry, a Netflix series, do you have any questions? Um, yeah. Why are you offering me this remarkable opportunity, Dr. Nair? Because, Mr. Moulton, you're the only person I could find with extensive experience in both political satire and medical billing. Besides, Harry Truman was known for his bluntness. And, from what I've heard on DB Comedy's The Electables, you're fairly short on tact as well. Yeah, well, uh, saying rude things is just my strange way of letting people know I like them. Anyway, Dr. Nair, it's been a real pleasure meeting you. I need some time to consider your spectacularly generous offer. Take all the time you need. Believe me, I will. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today's episode, President 33, Harry S. Truman. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars. Give us a review. Recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it. And we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. Woo, war is hell, right guys? <laughs> and we're almost done with it, which is good, because that's where we're heading in our next episode here. How about we just introduce ourselves randomly, hopefully friends that have listened to us will know who's who, and they'll also kind of figure it out as we go. Just trying to change it up. So I'm Joe. I'm Chelsea. Sylvia. James. He's James, I'm Paul. And I'm Patrick. I'm just wild about Harry, so Joe. You know, yeah, and um, so since we've been talking about, and we like talking about sort of reinterpretation uh, since we've mentioned Harry, I wanted to start with a little a reinterpretation that may in fact be reinterpreted. This comes from our friends of the rock band Chicago who in 1975 wrote a song that actually hit number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. At this point, I would actually play part of the song, but since we're on Spotify, we can't really do that because Spotify won't let us. Ooh, why don't you sing it for us, Joe? Oh, God, no. I was but I will do a quick... At this point, you're just teasing the audience, Joe. I know. Well, I, let me do a quick recitation, and this might be a good place to start. So, if you can't guess, the song was actually called Harry Truman. Um, so, so creative. Indeed. <laughs> Some of the lyrics very quickly go, We'd love to hear you speak your mind in plain and simple ways. 
call a spade a spade like you did back in the day. You would play piano each morning, walk a mile, speak of what was going down each with honesty and style. America's calling Harry Truman. Harry, you know what to do. The world is turning round and losing lots of ground. Oh, Harry, is there something we can do to save the land we love? Whoa, whoa, whoa. America needs you, Millard Fillmore. Uh, no. America needs you, Chester Arthur. Jeez, yeah, who should this song be about? Come in. Kind of a dump you got here, Sonny. Isn't your manager paying you enough in royalties? What the? You're Harry Truman. Really? What a big surprise. And you're Robert Lamb from the band Chicago, a fellow pianist. I've heard you on the radio, and you sing a mean tune, kid. Uh, thanks. <laughs> you look good for a man your age. Eighty years old, and I'm feeling stronger every day. Anyway, I'll be playing. Let's write a song, just you and me. Oh, are you just trying to make me smile? That's never been one of my priorities. Anyway, I've been searching so long for a collaborator. I need someone to help me write a song about my presidency. So, uh, you're the inspiration for a song? Yes, and I figure working with a band called Chicago would be a nice middle finger to the newspaper that tried to kick me out of office. Besides, we're a lot alike. Pundits hated me, critics hate you, but the people love us. That's, uh, true. Critics' choice were not. So you, uh, just want to write a song that reminds people of the old days when life was like an endless Saturday in the park? No. I want to write a song that reminds people I was a damn good president. I'm thinking, Harry, wish you were here. Yeah, maybe. Uh, what about paying tribute to your unapologetic nature? Something like, hard for Harry Truman to say he's sorry. I'm just wild about that idea. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, kind of impossible not to. Oh, wow. Just checked my watch. I... Didn't really know what time it is. Look, uh, Harry, I'd love to continue this dialogue, but I'm not free for much longer. I have an appointment in uh, 25 or 6 minutes. So if you leave me now, I'll start working on the tune. Any more specifications? Oh, yes. My daughter Margaret has to sing lead. Uh, Margaret? Isn't she an opera singer? And an aspiring author. And as writers go, she's a great singer. Anyway, she wants to write a biography of me, and I don't want to have to punch all the newspapermen who are going to make fun of her. So I figure if she just sang a song about me, she'll get it out of her system. Can you dig it? Yes, I can. Well, I think I've got the beginnings of a song. <laughs> wow, the power of a million new ideas. Great. I'm optimistic about the way things are going. We can make it happen. I'll leave you to your tune smithing. Call on me when you're ready for some lyrics. Sure. Like I'm going to write a song about the guy who dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. <laughs> Even Nixon can't do anything that would make me nostalgic for Truman. Let's see, where was I? 
America needs you, Andrew Johnson. Now. You want to talk about a president who's better remembered than he was afterwards than he was appreciated in his time. He was looking at 25% approval ratings before he decided not to run. And that song, of course, was written in the wake of Richard Nixon's resignation. So there was already some 20 some odd late years later, looking back in fondness over what was, what was not. So interpretation, reinterpretation, reinterpretation, Harry Truman. What did you guys learn? Because you were in school a little later, a little, little earlier than we have. And maybe even James, what do you teach about Harry Truman? So, I, you know, in terms of what I get to teach about Harry Truman, a lot of it kind of, you know, overlaps, uh, you know, the end of World War II, the beginning of the Cold War. So in terms of teaching, a lot of it's very foreign policy based, right? The dropping of the atomic bomb, the, you know, kind of America's international response to communism at the end of World War II. And then, of course, the Korean War, you know, for personally... I'm not sure if Chelsea can hear anything, but we were kind of texting back and forth. And I was like, well, I got a lot going on, but I really want to make this particular podcast because Truman's my boy. Um, ah. Truman is, is probably my favorite modern president. Um, okay, James, you just set yourself yeah. on the tee and I'm going to take me a swing and I'm going to make you defend him. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. I'd like, I think we're going to eventually come back to that. But before we do, I'd like to kind of double back and kind of get to the beginning and get a little bit of biography, which going back to the Chicago tune probably has something to do with how we see Harry Truman as sort of, again, you know, give him hell, Harry, the buck stops here, plain spoken, actually cussed, all of that fun stuff, particularly coming after so many years of patrician East Coast. FDR, who granted saved everybody, but you know, we definitely talked in the final FDR episode a bit about how Harry got to the position of being vice president, but we should probably go even further back about um, sort of his pre-political career and his political career, which I think for some people may be where they sort of give some of what he did, a fish, the, the old fish eye in the modern era, shall we say. So born in Missouri, the, of course, the show me state. We know he didn't come from money, multiple failed businesses, the haberdashery, I think, being the most famous one. I'm really jumping way the heck ahead if anybody has other uh, other. Add things to add, please do. He is the only president who served in World War One. Ah. Yes, and at some major battles too. Yes, um, he did. I he, imagine he, is extraordinarily scarring, and and I and I I imagine that, but I know this has a big impact on his views on kind of that total war, the the new kind of modern war of the twentieth century. Um, which is one of the reasons why he's doing everything he can to keep from starting World War III. Like Grant, he was kind of a failure of all trades until he joined the military. He was a good soldier, and he was very good at organizing the battalions he commanded. He could take a undisciplined one and whip it into shape the way Grant could. <laughs> he went back to civilian life and failed in private business. 
I would like to point out, um, I did not know this about Harry Truman, but he, if you were going to cast someone in the role of Beaver Cleaver back in 1897, you would choose Harry Truman. That's who he looks like. I just want you to know. (laughs) Both glasses, though. I I think that's why Truman is, is kind of such an endearing character, because like, He's like the ultimate like embodiment of the old Americanism. Local boy makes good, right? I mean, he's the kid in high school. You're like, oh, that kid's pretty smart. He could be president one day. But except, you know, they wouldn't because in order to be president, you have to have all these connections from like the time you were four. And he didn't have any of that, but he actually then became president, which is pretty cool. He made some connections along the way. Harry had a pretty good sense as a younger man. And I, I, and I think it's, it's fair to... Uh, criticize uh you know some of the uh, political activities that he was involved with early in his career where it, it seems like he was perhaps the beneficiary of of some uh machine political action pendergrass mm-hmm. so let's talk about mr pendergrass and the pendergrass machine so i so we're kind of in we're kind of entering the the the, the halcyon era of democratic political machines nationally or right smack dab in the middle of it right Yes, no, maybe. I would say the entire 20th century was kind of... Uh, uh, Like, starting in the Gilded Age and moving forward. Yeah, exactly. When was the... I am blanking on the... Oh, the... uh, Boss Tweed. Boss Tweed, thank you very much. That was the 19th century. Yeah, Gilded Age, man. Ah. And that was perhaps the prototypical machine, but the Prendergast machine... Pendergast machine. Why can't let us get this man's name? Pender. No R. Pendergast. Pendergast. Yeah. I'm confusing him with the former lead singer for Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes. <laughs> Very different man, I'm assuming. An easy mistake to make. And that's mm-hmm. Pendergrass, not Pendergast. Right. <laughs> you got what I want. Yeah, you got what Well, then, I mean, it begs the question since he failed at all of these other sort of business business dealings did he go into politics because there was he was failing at everything else he might as well try that yes exactly okay that's why he started running for local offices from what i understand but it provided a steadier income than making hats or planting wheat or selling cars apparently yes so the real adage is not you can't do teach but if you can't do Run for office. <laughs> Actually, true. Yep. Anyway, so I'm well, just going to ask and get it out the way. Uh, there have been um, people on both sides who said maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, Harry Truman, Klan member, yes or no? <sighs> By that silence, I'm thinking it well, sounds he, like yes. <laughs> well, he was a member of the. Uh... Uh, sons of the Confederate veterans. And I'm guessing that did not... That doesn't impede... necessarily mean you're a Klan member. I'm going to parse it, a few hairs there. But <laughs> but it also presumes, it, given how he progressed in the Pendergast machine, such an affiliation did not harm him, if he indeed had it. Sylvia, what uh, the, is the best evidence? thing I've ever heard was he pretty much did it for business connections and backed off once he found the depth of their um, activities. <laughs> Leave it to Harry Truman to be like, 
ah, oh, this seems like a good business networking opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the concerns, uh, this, the Council of Concerned Citizens hadn't been started yet, so you got to go where you can. He was running a haberdashery. Did you think he was going to supply the hoods? Oh, could be. I, I, mean, I don't. I don't care for the ropes. <laughs> and probably thought it was like a chamber of commerce meeting, and walked in. Why is everyone dressed like this? What's the evidence? Was there a testament? Did they find a membership card? Did they find uh Did he go to meetings? Yeah. Are there pictures? Um Are there pictures? So supposedly he has he went to a meeting to denounce them once he found out the extent of their activities. Uh, he but my but again, my understanding is he pretty much did it as Oh, you know, I've got, I'm a businessman and there are people who are in business and I've joined these people. And then I'm like, oh, crap, this isn't like the Rotary Club. This is the clan. OK, <laughs> I'm out. Classic. Harry uh, That's the best I've heard. Yeah, apparently when he, he was running for judge in Jackson County, Missouri, uh, and his political uh, advisors recommended that he join the clan because they they were already backing his two opponents uh so at least what i'm seeing here he did in fact uh pay the membership fee and went to a meeting but this was probably just to get elected yeah it seems to me that something again given harry truman's record on race relations later in life which i'm sure we'll get to um that it it seems like a and the I I will say this, but I will also give uh, say that I do not know his true intentions because I am not Harry Truman, if you haven't noticed, <laughs> um, but only to say that I would assume that it has a lot to do with being part of the machine and having to partake in what the machine tells you to partake in. And Although actually, uh, Pendergast, uh, Pendergast was uh, Catholic, so... Ooh, he, uh, yeah, he was not a favorite of the Klan. <laughs> Harry went on to desegregate the U.S. military and was one of the first world leaders to recognize Israel yes. being yeah. an ardent Zionist. So it's hard to say if, if he joined the Klan, its ideals, such as they were, did not stick. Yeah, according to uh, Margaret Truman's uh, autobiography, oh. uh, not that she has the, any the clan, uh, stake in the situation. This is true. Uh, the, the the officers in the uh, particular chapter tried to get him to pledge not to hire any Catholics or Jews, uh, and so he demanded the return of his $10 membership fee. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty uh, much along the lines of the things that I've heard. <sighs> but yeah, yeah, they... They, he did. Have, he did later claim that the Klan tried to kill him at, at, at least one time. I believe that you desegregate the troops and, 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 uh, and it's and not going to be a happy situation. And he claimed he went to one of their meetings to dare them to try. So, what kind of ambition did he have? Did he? I mean, did Harry ever envision himself to be president, or was he was he simply looking to be able to get a better job and a better position? and found a way, found slash earned his way to do, being able to do it. Or was he always trying to impress Bess's mother? Oh, <laughs> boy. Aww. 
That's kind of the heart of it right Well, there. then we need to take a step back and let's talk about Bess. Mm. Why are you so sad at the idea of Bess, Chelsea? No, I love her. I love, uh, I, I think one of my favorite things about their relationship is she rejected him the first time. She's like, nah, that's okay. <laughs> but Harry doesn't know the meaning of quit. <laughs> Harry Truman, the first stalker. Oh. <laughs> I see the rom-com, the 80s rom-com based on that. Him standing outside of Bess's window with the telegraph. <laughs> when Harry stalked Bess. Bess, yes. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Why do you love Bess so much? Just because she rejected Harry? No, I just think she's um she's just kind of adorable. Again, kind of like Harry, like we've been saying about Harry Truman, like chip off the old block, you know, good American for uh and it they just strike me as being like so so cute and wholesome. With their opera singing daughter, opera singing mystery writing daughter. Yes, there you go. Well, what finally won her over, if not her mom her mom? Too old Harry, too old hair. Old hair. <laughs> just his yeah, relentlessness? What's that? Oh, was it just his relentlessness? Was it just easier to say yes after a while? No, isn't it that, right, he he comes back a World War One hero. With all of and his- He loves models. a man in a uniform. There right? you with go. All his from Muse Argonne and San Miguel and, right, like, he is a decorated war veteran. Oh. Now, was she okay becoming the wife of a politician? Because sometimes, first, first, sometimes, they, sometimes spouses are, and sometimes spouses are not. Well, I think okay. they get, I think they get married before he has any political ambitions, and then sees that he has to support his wife and new child, and can't really do that on a failing haberdashery but correct me if i'm wrong james is that right no you're accurate married june 28 1919 95 years to the day before my own wedding oh. Oh. <laughs> how is your relationship with your mother-in-law james <laughs> did you have a harry s truman themed wedding <laughs> Well, okay, let's, um, so he becomes a senator in 1934. Yes. And again, we know from the final FDR episode that by the, what the thing that makes him noticed that eventually that helps him become vice president is headlining it is to uh, chair a commission that finds fraud in uh, war contracts, which I, again, as a, as a playwright, I always point out it was kind of the basis for Arthur Miller's first success, All My Sons. Um, what happened in between? What was his just, career like in between as a senator? And, and he was, it, allegedly, there was supposed to be another Democratic wave in 1940, but uh, Harry had a little bit of trouble getting reelected because uh, he did not, in a classic future president way, just like uh, Warren G. Harding, he did not have his n name on any significant piece of legislation. He was what the British would call a backbencher during oh. that first term. Mm -hmm. I thought you were going to say, well, like, Harding, he had a famous closet. I'm like, what, Truman? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't a haberdasher have a good nice closet, though? Mm. <laughs> well, I'm sure it didn't help that uh, 
Pendergast went to jail. Um, right. So, mm. uh, you know, sugar daddy's locked up and that makes life <laughs> a little tougher. His first real conspicuous display of any kind of leadership skill was running that, you know, fraud and abuse commission when he was, you know, campaigning against price gouging and profiteering and inspecting, uh, war, you know, war plants for, and maybe fruit plants, I have no idea, for, you know, signs of fraud and abuse. That's how he made his reputation as an honest anti-corruption campaigner. But I will say he does get the experience to lead that commission by serving on both appropriations and interstate commerce while in the Senate, which are two, even though he, like we said, he doesn't take a very active role in those committees. Um, he gains some really useful knowledge and skills that really do set him up to be able to run the Truman Committee um, and and take on that committee's responsibilities. So like, yeah, a backbencher, but a backbencher on some pretty high profile committees, which I think really matters. Although it's so funny, he does say that he had trouble getting President Roosevelt to return his calls during that time, which- (laughs) That would never change. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that gets us to 1944 and, this backbencher with one decent notch in his belt and one final run for, for the presidency for FDR, how or who, if it wasn't him, gets Roosevelt's attention to say him, make him vice president? Um, there was definitely a dump Wallace campaign. Because of the Southern Democrats. And... Right. He was too liberal. So Wallace was too liberal. FDR, they're quite sure, isn't going to survive the the term. There's a war to to win. There's a lot of Southern Democrats who would nominate a very conservative, very anti-New Deal. The the liberal wing of the Democratic Party wants to continue the New Deal after the war. The conservative wing of the Democratic Party wants to roll back the New Deal after the end of the war so i really don't know if he had a particular political impresario or like an angel overseeing his rise to the vice presidency but he was he was a public figure and his name came up and it was very much of a hey why the hell not was so there anyone else here is that basically he was kind of the favorite of the backbenchers of the Democratic Party, like people who were kind of, you know, you know the, the 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 state and local Democratic Party leaders were like, "What about this guy? He seems all right. He's one of uh, us. Who the hell are you? Yeah. Right." <laughs> so, like, and, all, all the and, great uh, replacements, vice president to presidents, he's just the guy who happened to be there at the time. <laughs> Right. And the guy that doesn't piss anybody off, you know, the guy who doesn't really have a long enough political record to have attracted that many enemies, but in fact, it attracted a good deal of public goodwill through his management of the committee. So he's the guy. He's the guy with the clean rap sheet. And so <laughs> ironic since we were talking about Pendergast. <laughs> he's in jail. He can't tell anyone. <laughs> All right. The- very brief period of his vice presidency. Let's talk. I mean, 
he didn't get many chances to meet with FDR, and he talked to FDR exactly twice, I think, during the during those two months. Wow. Two or three months between uh, inauguration and death. You think you... FDR, like, avoided meeting with Truman because it, like, reminded him of his own mortality? Like, he's like, if I don't, if I don't, like, deal if with I don't the meet fact him, I won't die. Happen, it might, then I can just avoid it happening altogether. Interesting theory. I kind of feel like FDR just refused to accept that he was going to die at any point. <laughs> like, death is for other men. I've got well, warm springs keeping me going. Yeah. Well, in the in the meantime, you do have Truman, and you do have people that are kind of figuring, kind of assuming that uh, you know FDR at some point will not be this mortal coil. So, what's going on to prepare him, if anything, for the gig? Nothing. He didn't even know about the A bomb. Is that right? Until after he was inaugurated, he said, "Oh, by the way." Yeah. <laughs> So he, so Franklin, so Roosevelt dies. Is it April forty five? April forty five. Yes, it is. Yeah. And then May forty five is VE Day, and that sets the table for the atomic bomb for the A bomb. And um, earlier we had a during the Franklin Pierce episode. Yes. We had a novelist, a gothic novelist, Andrew Piper, who wrote a gothic novel about Franklin Pierce. And the residence, we it was called. Yes. And Andrew Piper, P Y P E R. Nice guy. P Y P E R, yes. And um, as we were wrapping up that talk back, I decided, well, this would be a fun, snarky question, which is, well, my final question would be if there were one other president you would write a gothic horror novel about, whom would it be? Oh, that's this. That's easy, Truman. Um, really? Yeah. Really? Well, we know that in his letters, he uh, reported hearing footsteps, scratches, voices in the White House in you know at his office door when he was signing off on uh, on on the deployment of the atom bomb. And so, wow, we you, know, you could easily you could easily imagine uh, the pressure that he would have felt during that that moment while right you know experiencing the supernatural okay wow. you better write that book fast because one of us is going to grab that idea. <laughs> ah, <laughs> holy smokes yeah it's really interesting and then it, it this is a you know sort of homework uh, if anyone's nerdily interested but if you look up um the white house reno renovations of the 50s when, that truman initiated you'll see a picture in the sort of hollowed out white house of a figure, uh, a shadowy figure shot against the far wall of a man who was not there in the moment prior to the photo being taken. Hmm. Well, well unfortunately, uh, Andrew, I, I don't think anyone who listens to our historical comedy podcast are nerds. So, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's a fascinating bit of it's, it's first of all, it's something about Truman that I don't think anybody could ever guess would he would be something he would ever be known for i don't know again i think we i think we're really forgetting how horrible world war one was you guys um i mean it was a scarring and debilitating 
mental experience for the men who were there. And he was in two of probably the worst battles in World War I for American soldiers. And so if he is having PTSD, I am not surprised personally. Interesting. Though Let's also talk about how, how gothic really Harry's early presidency was. He had a decision, the way it was being presented to him by, you know, his military commanders was that he could kill 500,000 Americans by invading Japan. Or and, it he could kill... about a, and it would take about a year and a half to win. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, supposedly the, the estimate was that the fatalities, the casualties would equal everything, all American casualties to the war up until that point. Or he killed a couple hundred thousand Japanese civilians. That is some morbid. I think we'd all be hearing voices if we had to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fortunately, it was his choice as opposed to someone like Patton or MacArthur. Uh, these people who you know, would just like scorch the earth. We don't care. So the A-bomb is. is... Okay. You know, so, you know, I, I came into this and I was like, Truman's my boy. I, the area where I'm going to be the most critical about him, I think the fir- the use of the first atomic bomb was defensible. Um, one, I don't really know that Truman could really understand the scale of the devastation that that would bring to a city. Um, you know, I mean, they they had the they had the test. I don't know to what extent he really knew about that. Um, you know, they, he was you can show people statistics. Was still at right, mm-hmm. but you know, I I don't I. I think the use of the first one was defensible and just and to say, look, this is what we can do. You better surrender. And, you know, otherwise this is going to happen again. And, you know, this is something that we have. There might have been other ways of carrying that out. But war is war. It's not like the United States had, you know, not been bombing other cities using conventional weapons and and nearly the same or even more devastating scale. Yeah, I mean, arguably... Um, the bombing in Dresden was on a similar scale to the first. And there've been a yes. similar there've and been some a of the fire bombing of Tokyo. But, but I don't I have a really hard time defending the, the second one. I feel like by the time of the first one the wheels of surrender were already turning. The you know the Japanese government was in communication with the American government and saying you know basically we're trying to convince people that this is the right course of to do give us some time and we think we can change some minds here. And then the United States just went and said, okay, yep, well, we're going to kill another 50,000 people. Uh, um, what was the time period? Between... And I, I, I don't think that was uh, It was August 6th was, was Hiroshima. And then three days later, they bombed Nagasaki. Yeah, yeah. it was three and days. The next, and then the next day, uh, Japan surrendered. Yeah. And I, I really tend to agree with you on this one, James. I, I think one of the other things that the really good points that you make is right. This is such a destructive weapon that has really, that is so unprecedented that even if it was explained to Truman, how destructive this bomb was, it's hard to imagine. But then after the first bomb is dropped, he sees it, right? There is no question about how destructive and awful this weapon is and so to then turn around within three days time and drop another i i think you're right james i think it's indefensible was it always the plan to bomb two cities or was 
I think they had a list of. I think they had a list of four. They had a list of four that they chose from, and presumably the third and fourth could be next if Japan were being stubborn. Why not Tokyo? (laughs) Tokyo was was a ruin. There was nothing left. They picked they they purposely picked cities that had been relatively untouched by earlier bombing to demonstrate the the destructiveness of the weapon. They only had two bombs. Like they couldn't have dropped three. They only had two. Um, the rationale I've always heard, you know, I guess the most defensible rationale for dropping the second one um, was that they wanted to show the Soviet Union that they that, that this wasn't a one-time thing. Like, oh, we could only ever make one of these. That that they had multiple ones, and so they dropped the second one to show that they could make more than one. Although, in fact, they really only had two. It would be like another year and a half before they ever made the third one. It was um, like MacArthur which Park, is kind of and we almost lost weird, it. We never, but, were, never um, had that recipe again. <laughs> <laughs> He's dropped the bomb, VJ Day. And um, after several years of crisis, there's massive labor trouble and runaway inflation. But which, he won and the it war. would never happen again, right? But he won the war, so he's got some headwinds, or he's got some tailwinds, or he's got some winds behind him. I'm not a sailor. I don't know how winds blow in relation to sails, but you understand what I'm trying to say. I, I, feel, I feel like he ran into, I feel like those headwinds blew him right into the side of a steel ship. Ex- well, but for the for the best intentions, because... Besides the Marshall Plan, as we started to do some research, what did we discover was the thing that he really wanted to try to get for the United States? Fair deal. Fair deal. Fair deal. <laughs> the, and a national health care plan. That's part of the fair deal, Joe. <laughs> All right. Yeah, Joe. Fill in the blanks of the fair deal. Before the we get to The fair deal, uh, which is one of my, again... I can tell uh, y'all y'all know that FDR is one of my favorite presidents because of the new deal. The fair deal is basically um, Truman's new deal light. Um, and James can argue with me that it's a light version of the new deal, but I think it's a light version of the new deal because the new deal was so um, such a radical change the the fair deal while promising more to the american people is just a, an alteration or adding on to the new deal so the fair deal um essentially proposes extending social infrastructure programs throughout america namely to include the fair employment uh practices commission uh, a national health insurance and increased aid to public education and he gets some of that. <laughs> he tries really hard. I think because of what, because of going through eras where we've been trying to get some form of national health insurance and we have some form of something that serves that purpose, sort of. Um, when I started to look into the program, honestly, there's stuff, I mean, it was, there's something about the simplicity of it, the fact that it would cover absolutely everything, including dental care, up to a certain point, and then the government pays for it, that it all, that, like, Bernie Sanders is a flippin' piker compared to what this thing would have done. thing is, okay, from the analysis that I read, I know Harry was very disappointed, 
that he never got it passed. But based on the analysis, he mostly advocated it for advocated for it more precisely. I think I just invented a new word with the legislature. He was not one really to rally the United States. He was not going to have sit down and have a fireside chat and explain insurance, which health insurance really did, barely existed at the time. There were Blue Cross plans and union plans. And so he never he didn't give a lot of public speeches. He mentioned it in his State of the Union addresses, and he had congressional allies, I forget the name of him, I think it was a New York Senator, draft legislation, which yeah, got mired in committee. While our friend in Ohio, Mr. Senator Taft, started spearheading the fight against it. Yep. And then, see now, my first impression of that is that it was the unions that killed it because the unions had decent health insurance plans. But no, it's worse. Oh, my Who God. Who killed it? The AMA. Yes, the American Medical Association killed The American Medical Association, their campaign against... They came up with the term socialized medicine. It involved op-eds, it involved ads, it involved radio commercials. It was one, it was maybe the template for the modern advocacy, you know, multimedia advocacy campaign. The Dumont Radio Network, in cooperation with the American Medical Association, presents another edition of Unite Against the Collective, a public affairs anthology series about the dangers of health insurance. We take you now to Main Street in any town, USA, outside the local doctor's office. Hey, old timer. Let me get that door for you. You look a little down to the dumps. Oh, thank you, kindly stranger. Yes, I am a tad glum. Dr. Feelwell says I got six months. That's terrible. Only six months? Yep. And if I don't have my bill paid off by then, I'll have to get my toenails clipped at the charity hospital. Don't reckon we've met, Sonny. My, my name's Rected. Old man Rected. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Rected. My name's Sism. Mark Sism. Well, gosh, Mr. Rected, it seems an awful shame that a fella has to spend his golden years worrying about doctor's bills. Oh, don't forget the hospital bills, the dentist's bills, the podiatric hygienist's bills. But what'd you expect? Takes a lot of money to keep this old flivver of body running. Still, I wonder if there isn't a way to provide some relief for skyrocketing medical and dental costs. Say... Did you know that President Truman has sent a bill to Congress that would create a publicly funded health care option? So being a witch doctor is legal now? <laughs> no, misdirected. We all get health insurance. Everyone contributes to a federal fund that pays medical bills. Federal? <laughs> Sounds fishy to me. I'm not sure Uncle Sam should be in the business of tending to sick people. Well, that would come as a surprise to all the GIs who don't pay a dime for their health or dental care. Well, I reckon you got a point there. Do you have any more information about this national insurance? Why, sure. Here's a pamphlet from my friends at the Center for the Nation's Health that explains why. Old man rected, you left your colostomy bag in the waiting room. <gasps> Marxism, what are you doing here? Just exercising my constitutional rights. 
Don't throw- <laughs> oh, Why I oughta- You ruined my best suit! You can get a new suit in prison for free! Well, I, I'm surprised at you, Nurse Lizzie Fair. Why did you just empty my colostomy bag all over this nice young man? So he'd be covered with what he's full of. Pardon my participles. He's no nice young man. He's a subversive. So he got fresh with you on a date? If only. I know this heel's face from the cover of the Journal of the American Medical Association. That picture doesn't do me justice. A firing squad might, though. It's what you deserve for trying to destroy America with socialized medicine. So he wants to serve ice cream during doctor's visits? No, you old fool. It's like I was trying to tell you before Nurse Busybody here did her chimpanzee impersonation. <laughs> what she calls socialized medicine is what we call bringing equity to the uneven distribution of healthcare resources. Could, could you say that again in fewer words? I can boil it down to two. Commie propaganda. See the collectivist garbage in this so-called information pamphlet? The highest quality treatment is out of reach for most Americans of modest or even medium income. Oh, so you're saying that's not true? I'm saying that's the way things are supposed to be. If the best doctors and hospitals aren't allowed to charge the highest fees, then people have no incentive to improve themselves so they can afford better health care. Oh, so healthcare is a privilege, not a right. Healthcare is a miraculous gift from God. You'd know that if you were a Christian Marxism. Oh, are you one of them Rosenberg-style no-goodniks? Mm. Oh, dang. Where's the FBI when you need some? Don't you fret, old man Rected. The feds will be on their way as soon as I can get to a telephone. But they'll never find me. An affable, normal-looking guy like me will blend right in with the general population. <laughs> Except for how much you stink. Now stop harassing our patients or I'll pelt you with the spontaneous miscarriages. Oh, to think I almost became a commie again. But you didn't, old man Rected. Even with your diminished faculties, you could see through their nonsense. With a little help from me and my friends in the AMA, of course. Only by banding together and listening to our betters can we fight the specter of collectivism. I'm proud to call you my friend, old man Rected. Does that mean I get a break on my bill? Don't press your luck, Grandpa. This has been Unite Against the Collective on the Dumont Radio Network in cooperation with the American Medical Association. Tune in next week when a ruthless profiteer tries to bankrupt hard-working physicians across America with a convoluted scam called a health maintenance organization. Now, Harry said the luckiest thing that ever happened to him was the Congress. He had something to run against. He had an opposition. <laughs> So what's he doing in 46 and 47 to lead us to that fun election of 1948? Oh, man, 46 is the strike wave. I mean, massive labor unrest, right? So he's working through that. Um, steel workers, wasn't it? I know there was a steel worker strike during the Korean War. Steel workers, but also um, meat packers. People don't need meat, right? <laughs> um, coal miners, people don't need coal, right? 
um, railroad engineers. No one uses railroads. Um, electrical servicemen and women, probably not, but I'll say service women too. Um, and no, I think that's it. Is that what leads that's to Taft Hart- Is that what leads to Taft Hartling? Yes. Which is also helped by the aforementioned Taft. There's that guy again, Taft Hartley Act, which uh, is sets all these limits to unions because they're dirty and awful. And it's also important to note that Truman vetoed the Taft-Hartley Act, but there were enough Republicans and sympathetic Democrats that it was overridden in 1947, which is leading back to Paul's talk about how Truman said the uh, Truman's best the you know, best at best asset heading into 1948 was that Congress. Was that the only thing Truman vetoed? They didn't produce enough, lots of a lot of legislation, actually, from what I, from what I understand. They were very much of a do nothing Congress, except for Taft Hartley and uh, Hueck. Mm-hmm. Was that oh, the, it? Wasn't yeah. Hueck in the right around started at that right about? So Hueck had been around for a long time. It yeah, around the 30s, 30s, they were doing Hueck, but it, but it got gotten... revived right in that window. Uh, let's uh, MacArthur, MacArthur, uh, Joe MacArthur Park. There's yeah. a song. Joe McCarthy just blew on those embers. <laughs> he was first elected. In the Republican wave of 1946. There you go. As, as well as a creepy little dude from California by the name of Richard M. Nixon. Uh, yeah, who uh, campaigned uh, based uh, using uh, communism and anti-Semitism. <laughs> Sounds about right. Well, let's, before we get to Korea, Truman has to be there, which brings us to 1948. So... The Republicans are clearly thinking they're they're they seem to be th- thinking they're on a high. They just got Congress. They just passed this big law that's gonna they probably think is gonna repel one of their biggest nemeses, organized labor. They must think of Truman as just this sitting duck. So what do they do? They run Dewey. <laughs> Cheat him and how? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why was it Dewey in 48 instead of Taft? They were the front runners. Taft was a poor, would have been a terrible presidential candidate. Mm. He was not very likable. I mean, even as a senator, I mean, he he's one of these people that people kind of put up with when he's your senator, your congressman. But in terms of like the face of the nation, no, no one so would was have he the that. Ted Cruz of the Republicans of 1948. Ooh. That's probably not a fair analogy to even Robert Taft. <laughs> but it may not be that as far off as you might think. Did the Democrats think it was a done deal and they were kind of packing the drapes, so to speak? The Democrats were looking to draft people to run. And like some Democrats did not want to run Truman again. And they were hoping that... Um, they were trying to draft Dwight Eisenhower. They wanted Dwight Eisenhower to run as a Democrat. Um, they were trying to draft Eleanor Roosevelt. They wanted Eleanor Roosevelt to run for president. Um, so definitely there was a sense among the Democratic Party that Truman was a weak candidate going into 48. Um, and that, you know, and so this would have been like late 47, early 48. The economy's still struggling. Um, and, you know, the war over, but also, you know, Truman not receiving a whole lot of credit for that because he was only there for a few months 
and people kind of like, hmm, maybe this post-war transition didn't go so well. Um, and so certainly I think that that's kind of Truman's weakest point. Um, but I think as the political class often does, they're kind of looking at their own opinions and reading them and being like, oh, this is what everybody thinks. Um, and they did not appreciate the extent to which the New Deal coalition still existed as a potent electoral force. And the fact that the kind of overreach of the 50th Congress to kind of roll back worker protections and um, things like that were not actually popular. And so, you know, Truman was able to go out there and said, well, I was trying to help people and this stupid Congress doesn't do a damn thing about it. And, you know, why don't you send them a message and send me back to the White House? That's and he trotted out the National Health Plan. He really didn't talk about it much publicly until that 48, the whistle stop campaign. Mm -hmm. Hey, they won't even let you have a national insurance plan. But that was interesting because that seems to be one of the first really hardcore national campaigns where you see barnstorming by the candidate in as many of the 48, 48 states that as, uh, as there are. What was Dewey's campaign like in comparison? What did Dewey do? What did Dewey do? <laughs> was it? What, did he do anything and just assume that? Well, why should I do anything? Was I'm going to ride, ride on a wave of popular votes. I think is to the extent that that Truman's campaign wasn't against Dewey; it was against the 50th Congress. Um, Dewey was a pretty likable guy from everything I've read in terms of just like he had kind of a, a, a general broad reputation as being stand-up guy, you know. Well, I mean, he was from Owasso, Michigan, so. Right. Um, and then, so, uh, you know, I think that Truman is basically not looking to create a, a division between him and Dewey. He's looking to create a division between him and the, the 50th Congress. I think Dewey, I think he was just kind of waiting for Truman to implode. I think he was like, people don't like this guy. He's just running on Roosevelt's ideas, but with half of Roosevelt's charisma I'm really nice. Um, you know, we just won the Congress back. Let me be president. Um, yeah. He had lost to Roosevelt by a smaller margin than any other Republican in 1944. So he felt he had the headwinds behind him. I'm not a sailor writer. So. Well, and especially, right, Truman, one of the things that was so commonly known about Truman was that he was extremely distrustful and uncomfortable with the press. And if he's going to kind of make the case for himself, he is not, most people think that he is not going to be successful at that. Um, apparently there was also a mistake Dewey made in that there, were, there apparently was a presidential debate in 1948, but it wasn't Dewey versus Truman. It was Dewey versus as Harold Stassen. Even then, Jesus Christ. Yes, because at the at the end, it was forty nine point six for Truman to forty five point one for Dewey, five and a half percent. That's pretty comfortable. The Electoral College three hundred three to one eighty nine, and yet somehow the Chicago Tribune blew it. Good morning. This is the Chicago Tribune. How may I direct your call? What do you mean, Thomas Dewey lost? Begging your pardon? I bought your late edition and said right there in big block letters, Dewey defeats Truman. Yes, sir. Only now I understand he didn't win? 
I see. So I need to know who won. The Chicago Tribune is one of the finest newspapers in the country. It can't be the finest newspaper in the country and it gets the most important story in the world wrong. Now, can it? The story is wrong according to who? According to WGN radio station. He didn't. Perhaps you should take that up with WGN radio. Yeah, I like to think newspapers are more accurate than that radio. I cannot direct your call. I normally only listen to the radio for the Cubs, and they stink to high heaven. So you wish to speak to someone in the sports section? I wish to speak to whoever is supposed to get the story of the presidential election right. How may I direct your call? I want you to tell whoever is supposed to be running the show over there that I intend to spend my good money on a paper that will get the news reporting right. Of course. No newspaper can stay printing if it constantly gets the news wrong, now can it? Hopefully not. And the Chicago Sun and the Chicago Times just became one paper, so maybe they'll know the first time who won the presidential election. This is not the switchboard to the Chicago Sun or Times or Sun Times, sir. It most certainly is not. I suppose I could direct you to Colonel McCormick. Donor? Wouldn't that be the main person to tell if you strive for accuracy, sir? Well, just, um, well, just, 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 just tell them to be better. Bad enough we have to keep that Missouri Hick Truman as president. If I can't get real information, I'll just have to get it elsewhere. You do what you need to do, sir. Good day. Perhaps I should have directed him to the comics editor. This is the Chicago Tribune. How may I direct your call? What is this fake news about Harry Truman winning by two million? So Truman gets his fall term. Um, how'd he do? So, I mean, Truman is clearly known more for, besides art screaming at reporters over his daughter, the bomb, Korea, MacArthur. That's sort of the... Ooh, yeah. Desegregating the military. When did he do that? Towards the end of World War II, I think, right? Uh, it will, let's see, it would have been... I'm going to keep saying 51. For no, it was in 48. It was in 48 uh, with executive order 9981. You know, I think it's it's tough for for Truman to, you know, he's he accomplishes what he's able to accomplish through executive action. Um, and otherwise, his agenda kind of gets stalled in the mud, as will happen again. Um, you know, I think you could make an argument that one of FDR, FDR kind of understood that Southern Democrats were not going to, they were willing to abide or at least keep their mouths shut about government expansion if it was not going to be civil rights focused. Um, And so the New Deal, by kind of picking and choosing their battles on civil rights and kind of avoiding the heart of the issue, basically, and especially since, you know, the South was poor and wanted money, um, that FDR is able to get a lot of the New Deal passed. I think by Truman's point, especially since the fair deal was so much focused on let's create programs that help everyday Americans, you either had to decide whether that was going to be a program implemented in a racist way or not. 
Truman was not willing to let it be implemented in a racist way. And therefore, that kind of meant that Southern Democrats were going to oppose it. Yeah, I think there's I think you also, James, bring up a really interesting distinction between FDR's style of leadership under the New Deal and Truman's style of presidential leadership trying to forward the fair deal. And I, Roosevelt does a lot of, enacts a lot of the new deal, like James says, in this moment of crisis through executive action, right? Most of the new deal programs that we think of as being transformational are not brought through Congress. Truman though, coming from Congress himself, um, I think has a lot more respect for how laws are passed, quote unquote, um, and and so decides, makes the choice, like, I want these things, these, um, I want the fair deal to come through Congress. So it might be a program that originates with him, but he's never going to do it himself through executive action. He wants it to come from Congress because that's, that's how he sees laws being made. And again, it's just a style of leadership. So, so okay, if we're gonna go, if we're gonna go a Truman full foreign policy mode, I think we got to go back to the UN. Okay. Um, and Truman's kind of international. I, I think Truman is one of the one of perhaps the only presidents, other than May, than Wilson, random Wilson thing in there who actually has kind of an international perspective in terms of how he sees the governance of the world and that he i think is a true believer in trying to put together a collaborative process for solving national issues of security through international fora um and i think that he really you know wanted the united nations to work in that way um it still doesn't and, um, you know, never really did. Uh, the I would actually argue that the Korea thing was was kind of a bright spot for the UN. But I think we have to understand that the United Nations and the Marshall Plan are together, kind of a Truman's attempt to build this kind of international structure. But it really only kind of gets a quarter of the way built in that it's built in Western Europe and North America and that's it. That's kind of the only takers to the plan. The, you know, obviously the communist world is like, yeah, we'll join the UN, but we're not going to be part of your, you know, thing. Um, although it would be worth t- at least a little bit of time um, talking about how the Soviet Union applied to join NATO. Um, <laughs> so was the tepid police action of Korea a... 3B, 3A, 2C. The way I the way I put it in class is that the Korean War was the containment theory put into action. Communism was spreading; it had it had gone across the 38th parallel, and we had to say, "Hey, no, not not allowed." And (laughs) eventually, if we were going to be serious about containment in the face of what was clearly an illegal invasion, we had to do something about it and you know whether that meant american troops on the ground i guess you could make an argument that it didn't have to but if it didn't the south koreans were going to lose that war 
right? And I think you could talk to about 80 million South Koreans today who are happy they live in South Korea, not North Korea. They, they produce um, parasite and uh, train to Busan, after all. Yeah. Or as, you know, people kept asking circa 19, I believe it was at 1949, 1950, after uh, the Mao went powwow on the Chow. I'm sorry, that's really going off the rails there. But <laughs> the fall of China, I feel like, you know, since I've read too much, too much David Halberstam, it is portrayed as having had a very toxic effect on American foreign policy for the next 25 or so years because for some reason we blame we blame the state department republicans blame the state department for the rise of communism in china which leads to korea which leads to the reasoning behind the domino principle so that gets us into vietnam too so who did lose china Chiang Kai-shek. Okay. Bad <laughs> for him. And we didn't give him enough. We didn't give him enough support. Mao, who, an absolute motherfucker. Yes, you can say that on a podcast. But uh, a damn <laughs> brilliant, a damn good military leader. Wins a long-term civil war. Suddenly, we have a big, great, big, fat new communist threats. And yeah, not a good day. Not a good day. And that leads to Korea. So Korea and Dougie. Was, and Dougie. Uh-huh. And Dougie, who wants to drop a whole bunch of bombs on China to... To apparently cover up for the fact that he didn't think China was going to help North Korea. Pshaw. Uh, at the time, Mac the MacArthur firing was a really big deal. I don't get the sense in the grand scheme of things it was just... Yeah, he kind of blew it, and he was an egotistical jerkwad. And in, in the end, nobody seemed to be too bothered that he was finally let go, even though he gave a really good speech on the way out the door. Um, what's, the, what's the Truman quote? Like, I forget the first half. He's fired. Oh, he's fired for disobeying the president. He was not fired because he's an idiot, because then half of our generals would be fired. <laughs> and he said, actually, oh. not... He, MacArthur didn't get universally positive reviews for that speech he made to Congress, literally draped in the American flag, mm -hmm. as uh, Truman called it pure bullshit. MacArthur did overplay his hand thinking, well, because I'm fired, then, you know, people, blood will run in the streets in my favor. They, this will be harsh for Truman. And you get back and it's a tepid reception. Mm -hmm. If yeah, no. MacArthur was a legend in his own mind and yes. not that many other. And, and really, he had kind of, you know, so landing at Inchon, great strategic move. You know, World War II, island hopping stuff. Okay, fine, you did your job. You know, you had all the planes and all the ships and way more guns and tanks than the 10 Japanese people did who were holding a trench, you know, throwing bamboo spears at you. But okay, great. <laughs> You took that island. Way to go. Um, and, you know, so landing in Incheon, great job. And then, you know, sweeps up the Korean Peninsula. Okay, fine. And then he basically he's like, the Chinese will not attack. They were telling it like, um, intelligence was like, they're going to attack. He's like, nah. And then they do attack. And then he just like mopes. 
Like he does nothing. <laughs> he's, Tokyo. he's not even in Korea. And he's just basically like, doesn't like, he won't answer the door. He won't answer calls. He's like despondent. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, I think that people in the U S military knew that. And so I think that when Truman finally fires MacArthur, cause he's the only guy who's got the, you know, the ability and the, you know, political standing to do that. I think a lot of other people in the U.S. military are relieved. They're like, "Thank God that, thank God that guy's gone," because that guy was an asshole who was not helping us out. So, so Truman decides not to run. He leaves the presidency in 1953, and I have to say, I think one of the other reasons Truman is held up is, dude was around thirty. He dies in 1972. That's one of the longest ex-presidencies that are out there. I'm sure he's a good interview out in the middle of the country. Um, I do remember in the early mid seventies, uh, there was a one man show uh, by James Whitmore called Give Him Hell Harry, which I think he won a Tony for. I remember watching it on TV, which undoubtedly helped raise the, again, the myth of the plain talking guy from Missouri. Um, did he do anything else uh, in his in his post presidency besides just living? He was the guy who got the presidential library thing going, right? Ah. And wasn't he the first president to get a pension in retirement that they voted uh, he they didn't like the way he was living and thought it was unbefitting a former president, so they. Uh, pass legislation to have ex-presidents receive pensions. So yes, in other that's words, true, he wasn't very good at retirement out. either. No, he had money. He just was cheap. Oh, sounds <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he he. It turns out that he had actually you know amassed fairly considerable wealth, but he just did not show it off particularly prominently, which then led people to believe that he was poor. So they voted him a pension, but. He was fine. I, he, just was, <laughs> I don't, he lived in Missouri. How much did he need for crying out right, loud? Right. My my favorite part of that whole uh, situation, though, was the only other uh, surviving president at the time was Hoover, who <laughs> definitely didn't need the pension. Uh, no one wanted to give but, him one anyway. But he mm-hmm. he accepted it because uh, to try to save Truman from the embarrassment of being uh, poor and bad with money. Yeah. <laughs> Hello? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Truman Presidential Library. Yeah, I I was driving by, I saw your sign, T-R-U-M, and I just stopped reading there. It already practically has my name on it, and that's great. That's just tremendous. Donald Trump, what are you doing here? Haven't you been arrested yet? You know, Ivanka told me I should start thinking about my legacy, which, you know, turned, got me turned on. But uh, then she told me she meant making a presidential library, which I wasn't as interested in. But then Jared said a library is basically just a hotel for words. So now I'm all in. Okay. Well, you've come to the right place for it. Harry S. Truman created the first presidential library to help secure his legacy and preserve his reputation. Here, you can learn how your predecessors made America great again. (laughs) That's what you like to say, right? 
Come right this way. Hey, no grabbing. Grabbing's my job. <clears throat> well, here we have our famous Truman wax sculpture collection. Wow, these are so lifelike. They uh, they remind me of Steve Bannon. Can I have one? I mean, all the dummies in my administration talk too much, especially to committees. Here we see Harry Truman being sworn in as vice president under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Truman would later take over the presidency. Hey, you got to respect a guy who would steal a job from a cripple. Well... Mr. Roosevelt, and him, actually, at that point, he uh, died. But moving on, President Truman went on to deal with several major foreign policy issues. He declared war on Korea. Ooh. He faced down the looming threat of communist China. Oh, and I bet that's where they invented Kung Flu. And, and he worked hard to curb the influence of Russia over foreign nations. And there you lost me, Doc. He's most well-known, however, for ordering two atomic bombs to be dropped on Japan at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, I mean, if you got it, you gotta use it, right? Huh? Yeah, I bet no one made fun of you on Twitter when you dropped this bad boy on Korea. The Japan. Same difference. Oh. oh, what's this? Oh, well, Truman was a very responsible administrator, adorning his desk with a plaque that said, the buck stops here. Oh, I like, I like that. Uh, I'm going to get one of these uh, for my desk. Uh, mine will be gold with diamonds, and it'll say, all the bucks stop here. Because uh, when you got bucks coming in, why stop at one? All the bucks pass through my desk, and, you know, it's good enough for my hotels and my casinos, my universities, my stakes. So it's going to be good enough to make America great again. Oh, so what did you think of the tour? I love it. I'll take it. Wait, what, what? I'll buy the whole place. You can't just buy the Truman Presidential Library. Listen, I may not know museums or libraries, but I know real estate. That's debatable. And once you get rid of all this historical crap, you'll have a great little space here. Uh, okay, boys, take that pee and add it to the drum. Uh, we'll subdivide the place. Luxury condos. The Trump Residential Library. Uh, start tearing down that wall right there. Oh, no, that's the historical photo what? wing. Oh, what's this? <gasps> oh, what? Oh, Truth Social will be hearing about this. Dewey did not defeat Truman, no matter what the dishonest media wants you to think. Fake news. So sad. Truman outlives, he almost outlives his next three, the next three presidents. So he outlives Eisenhower. Definitely outlives, definitely outlives Kennedy. Yep. Right. Yep, yep. And then he, Eisenhower, or excuse me, Truman dies. Too soon, Sylvia, she made him face at me when I made that comment. <laughs> definitely dies. <laughs> um, shoot, I'm sorry about John Dingle page. Hold on. Um <laughs> When does, uh, you, I, I mean, I remember in this, I mean, as a, as a kid, I do remember like Truman 
Johnson. Yeah. And, and Truman and Johnson died, passed away very close to each other. Days apart, December 26, yeah. 72 to January 11th, 73. Yeah. I looked at those numbers recently, but yeah, so it's, he almost lives as long as Johnson. So yeah, uh, I, I certainly think that Truman's lengthy post-presidency um, and the fact that it's not like his his perspective continues to endure, um, it, right? So like Hoover has this post-presidency, but like no one's going back to Hooverisms in the <laughs> 1950s. It's not like his like you know. That's not true anymore. That he is. They are people are now. Ironically. But, not, but not in his lifetime, whereas Correct. in Truman's lifetime, right. the United Nations is there, the Marshall Plan is active, you know, Eisenhower succeeds him, but basically, you know, doesn't expand the New Deal, but doesn't, you know, totally trash it either. Um, and then, you know, there's Kennedy, who is kind of building on, you know, other ideas there. And I'm sure that there were people who had served in the Kennedy administration, who had served in the Truman administration, Oh yeah, it is kind of there's a there's an intellectual continuity of Truman's legacy that allows him to kind of still be seen as an elder statesman in the way that other um, you know ex presidents were not because you know basically anything pre Roosevelt is now ancient history politically. Any final thoughts or factoids about Harry? One of my favorite albums out there is Mermaid Avenue um, by Billy Bragg and Wilco, mm-hmm. which is uh, a re-recording of previously unreleased Woody Guthrie songs. You have, you have at song, least two huge fans on the screen of that album. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last song on that album is Isler on the Go. Uh, and Truman gets a shout out in that since we started with music, maybe we should end with music. Oh. But he gets a shout out at the end um, with the line, Truman, he don't learn too good, which is (laughs) probably true. Uh, I just want to add the ridiculous factoid I've learned uh, of the day is uh, Truman, you know, famously had the the buck stops here sign on his desk. Uh, The back, it has the back and it just says, I'm from Missouri. (laughs) <laughs> in case he forgot in case he forgot that would be the, the side pointing to him too so it's <laughs> i guess my what i would say is that um you know so i i kind of started with you know truman's my favorite modern president I, you know i guess modern is kind of a stretchy term at this point but um you know II because you know i think that his legacy on civil rights is strong his legacy on um, domestic, um, you know, on the welfare state and helping people is strong. I think his foreign policy is interesting, but I think was guided by the right ideals, even if they weren't always perfectly executed. Um, and I also think that just as an individual, he's one of the few American presidents who really doesn't try to cast a persona about himself. Certainly Roosevelt did, Eisenhower, Kennedy. We have all these presidents that kind of create these personae about themselves yeah. I don't know that Truman really ever did that. I mean, he really was what he purported himself to be. Uh, it's so interesting you say that, James, because if we 
you know, one of the earliest episodes, we talk so much about kind of the persona that George Washington tries to cultivate around himself. And one of the reasons that people hate John Adams so much is that he also is like, F this, like, this is just who I am. I'm a cranky New Englander who just doesn't (laughs) give a damn. And I feel like it's kind of the same situation, right? Between Truman and FDR. Interesting. Which is really interesting because as we end this episode, we come up to someone who kind of has a decent reputation for theoretically not doing much because of all of the things that were going on while he was there. We want to talk about ideals and personas and projections and what was versus what really was. Then you'll like Ike. Next. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trinet Network. And listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.